yeah, we were in the studio, in the studio. Nice. Uh, yeah, I still remember. I was I was just doing my guitar parts uh, on that day, on that moment. Okay. And I was totally confused on that, like uh, confused in what I'm doing and recording, and you know. So and then there was a phone call, and I think it was Mr. Rory who was on the phone, most likely, and he he said immediately to me like, okay, hey guys, we should. There's a record label and they want us to be part of the Eurovision Song Contest. And I remember my reaction, I'm like, wow, oh my God, no way. <laughs> it's, it, it was immediate, like, but I was middle of, you know, work and like, really, uh, my head was uh, trying to uh, play guitar, my head was there, so okay. the reaction was like, no way disturb me <laughs> yeah, I remember I was a little bit like you know hesitant uh, yeah and a little bit angry or something like why, why you disturb me yeah. now yeah. I have more important things to do here Eurovision no way okay let's move on while Lordy were in the studio recording the Oroclips they were offered the chance to enter the Finnish qualifiers for the 2006 Eurovision Song Contest in Athens, Greece. This offer would pave the way for a crazy journey for the band and would leave a lasting mark on themselves, their fans and also the mainstream public. From True Metal Podcast, I'm Matthew Kessie and this is Monsters of Rock, The Lordy Story. And you're listening to episode 6, the season finale of the first season, The Eurovicious Saga. When Lordy were given the opportunity to enter the finished qualifiers for the competition, there was quite a bit of a hesitation in the band to the idea at first. Did you ever think that people would, your fans would either turn on you or you'd get a lot of negative press in any way by going into the competition? Were you ever fearful of that? I don't think at that time we didn't think about it. Right, okay. No, it's a, at least for me, you were reason, I was a little bit surprised that there was this competition still going on. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't following it, you know, at all. Nice. When I was a kid, little boy, I was, I was watching it, but I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. Like who, who were there, like past ten years or something. So yeah, it was so, it was so different. So I, th- I think we didn't think about. It. We just thought about it. it's a good, good uh, advertisement for our new album. The offer to enter the Eurovision Finnish qualifiers was presented to Mr. Lordi by Kimo Valtanen, who had worked with Lordi's record label at the time, which was Sony BMG Finland, and him and Mr. Lordi had been long childhood friends. When they entered this competition, they had entered with two songs, which was incredibly rare for the time, and the first song, which was quite heavy, was Bringing Back the Balls to Rock. And, of course, the other one was Hard Rock Hallelujah. Striking down the province of fools. 
Now, of course, Hard Rock Hallelujah would be the song that would see Lordy storm through the finished qualifiers and the semi-finals too. And it probably goes without saying at this point, but Lordy, having been a touring band for nearly four years at this point, had built a strong Finnish and European following and their outlandish look and image and their style of music would, of course, elevate them above the competition and beyond in many ways. So all of these factors combined together played to be a winning combination, really. But they also came with a price. Conservative groups are trying to get the Finnish entry, it's a heavy metal band called Lordi, banned. That's accusing them of promoting Satanism. Let's talk to our correspondent in Athens, Richard Galpin. Richard, watching the, this particular band at um, the semi-finals during the week, they didn't look particularly scary on television. Were they scary at all up close? No, not at all. We interviewed them yesterday, and they're very normal and uh, fun guys, actually. And uh, no, I, and they clearly deny any links uh, with Satanism whatsoever. They say this is uh, complete nonsense. Uh, they're, they're just about fun and entertainment. And, you know, I think, frankly, this uh, attempt by uh, a number of very marginal conservative groups here to try and get uh, uh, the prosecutors involved to try and get this band removed from the contest really amounts to very little. It's not going to happen. I don't think it's particularly serious now. So we're just into that area of no, there's no such thing as bad publicity. One remembers in Estonia uh, there, was, there was the cross-dressing airline stewardesses. I can't remember which country they were from and they ended up having a pretty much European wide hit and then they disappeared. Absolutely, and, and Lordi are, are milking this uh, for all it's worth. They have really had the bulk of the media attention uh, over the past few days. They really are the big story in town, and uh, they've had swarms of journalists around them. When we were speaking to them yesterday, we were in a long queue. There were people waiting after us as well, so it's really been great for them, and uh, they've come from absolutely nowhere, and people are saying these may be the ones uh, to beat. Um, I think probably they're the outsiders, but certainly uh, they are in with a good chance and as I say they've come from absolutely nowhere but they've just garnered so much media attention over the past few days it's, it's been brilliant for them. That BBC report during the early stages of the competition is just one example of the hundreds of reports that existed to credit Lordi as a satanic band and many of these reports even stemmed from Lordi's home country Finland. However I think if anyone did any research at this time, they would clearly have seen that a band that has a song called Devil is a Loser clearly would not be Satan worshippers. As well as the fact that Keita, Lordi's drummer at this time, was writing hymns for his local church. Keita, while we're talking about him, was also one of the few members in the band that was actually optimistic about Lordi's chances in the competition. I was I was I was probably the one that I, I did expect it. Okay. I was I was the I was the guy who said, okay, of course we're going. Because other guys were kind of like, well, maybe we shouldn't go. And I was like, hey, what what the fuck? Let's go and and get some free promotion. Yes. And and of course, we went there like two weeks before that the final was there, and and you could you could smell, and you could see that okay, there's something happening here. And and day day after day, I felt that okay, we we we're, we're gonna win this shit. Uh, it was uh, somehow I kind of like I had this this feeling in me, especially after we 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 went to the final because that was the of course that there, there's like two options they don't get us at all or then we will win the shit. There's the yeah. only t those two options. That was my opinion. Right. And uh, but of course I I was loving it every 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 minute of it. I loved it. It was it was really great great experience and. Um, I don't think that I would go there again, but but at, at, at the time it was it was you know great thing great thing to experience. Having qualified for the Eurovision final in Athens, Greece, Lordi became the most popular and focused upon act in the competition. Tracy Lip, Lordi's vocal coach, was with the band at this time and was helping Mr. Lordi out with his voice. You know, I gave him voice lessons at the beginning, and uh, and these basically were just to, to strengthen uh, and mature his voice. And uh, 
I think the first vocal challenge that his voice had was was actually um, uh, Eurovision. Now, I, I participated in Eurovision in 2002. Mm. Uh, I was a co-writer on, on Finland's uh, song, Addicted to You. Yeah. So I'd, I'd already been there once, so I knew... Uh, I wasn't a co-writer on, the, on Lordy's song, but... Um, I knew what Eurovision was all about, and I understood the pressures that, that the, the singers have. It's uh, it's a crazy environment. Have you have you been there yourself? To Eurovision? No, I haven't. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I've been backstage at big big tours like Lollapalooza and stuff like that. Eurovision is a completely different animal. Nice. Because uh, it's basically two weeks of nonstop partying. Uh, rehearsing interviews and not enough rest and most of the time the singers start losing their voices our 2002 singer uh, she lost her voice about a week and a half in and she started panicking it was basically because she was just talking too much all the interviews because everybody thought that she was going to win so so we came in like third to last but what we were predicted to win at the time it was really funny uh laura was her name laura walter linen but um you know i had to like do emergency like voice recovery with her because her voice was just done it was tired and so when when lordy was when Mr. Lordy was there about a week in, I'd already warned him about about the possibility of this. And so when his voice started going because of all the interviews, it was uh, really easy to take care of. You know, basically you gargle with salt water and do some, some recuperation exercises. And that that was a big turn, I think, for him. The initial thing with him was... Um, how long will his voice last before it's it's going to be gone? Like when we when he when they started touring, and the funny thing was he was able to sing even when his voice was gone, which was interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know basically he sings right, even though it sounds like he's you know doing damage to his voice. He's he's not, and if if you're using proper uh, proper air control. And um, being careful about how how you push and stuff like that, you know, you can sing the way that he sings and not hurt yourself. Congratulations! And now the best way to end this show, the 51st Eurovision Song Contest is by hearing the winning song, ladies and gentlemen, Finland! Lordy, having been considered the outsiders in the competition, went on to dominate and win the Eurovision with a then record points total of 292. This win then created a huge domino effect and brought about massive opportunities for Lordi. Following the win they went back to Finland and performed in front of 90,000 fellow Finns to celebrate the win. And that square in Mr Lordi's hometown of Rovaniemi was named after the band and the monument with the 2006 lineup's handprints is still present there to this day. This is of course only one example of the many accolades given to the band. Lordi also started at this point to get the chance to make more elaborate merchandise like Lordi Cola, Lordi Jellies and Miss Lordi even opened up a Lordi themed restaurant called Rocktorant. Another accolade that was given to Eamon, Lordi's guitarist, was a statue erected in his honour in Mansala. <laughs> I have my statue, yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. <laughs> man, yeah like I said, Mansella. It's Mansella, uh, okay. Mansella, yeah, the small place. Nowadays, around 20,000 people. Right. And one hour, 45 minutes from Helsinki. So that's where I spend most of my life. 
back in the days, like, you know, nice. schools and everything. And my first band was there and everything. So it's huge stone. Right. Actually. It's like, uh, it's, uh, and that stone material is from, from that village, this Mantella area. And it's called Mantella uh, Hard Rock, something that they have there. I don't know. Okay, cool. So, did it come as a surprise that was that that it was going to be unveiled in your honor? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah, right. but everybody was so happy for us. Yeah. So it's, it's, this this is something I really don't think about every day or every month. Yeah. But now when I start to think about it, when we talk about it, to have your own statue monument somewhere, it's it's unbelievable. Once Lordy settled back after the Eurovision victory, they set out to reap the rewards of that win by touring Finland and Europe extensively, selling at venue after venue and expanding their already strong and vibrant fan base, or the Monster Maniacs as they're more commonly called. It was during this time that Lordy went to the USA and performed at Ozfest, which, in case you didn't know, was a festival tour founded by Ozzy Osbourne and his wife Sharon and son Jack, which toured the United States of America with numerous hard rock and heavy metal acts. It was at Ozfest that a friendship was formed, one that would have a huge effect on Lordy. That friendship was between a monster man and a pyro guy. Okay, so I start my show. I gotta watch concussions, but first, I gotta run, do concussions in. I gotta grab Mr. Lordy's stick. Give it to Mr. Lordy. Run back to concussion. Boom, boom. Go back. Grab the stick. Put it down. Oh, Bazooka. Stand there. Give it to him. Run to concussions. Boom, boom. Run back. Grab the bazooka. Come back here. After that, it's the dynamite. Gotta grab the dynamite. Run to Mr. Lordy. Here's your dynamite, Mr. Lordy. Run to concussions. The pyro guy that we're talking about with the unmistakable voice is of course Ralph Ruiz, who many Lordy fans will know from the Skartic Circle Gathering tracks on Lordy's albums on Babes for Breakfast onwards, and also from numerous live performances with Lordy too. But we will hear from Ralph about those in the future. For now, we need to find out about how his friendship with Lordy began. I got involved in pyrotechnics in 2000. Uh, um, I was actually doing stagehand work at the local arena in Long Island, New York, uh, Nassau Coliseum, and it was actually WWE wrestling. Okay, right. So I was looking to get out of my local job as a, um, I was working at a lighting company and i ran into a friend of mine who was on the pyro crew he was looking to get off because he was having a baby right so i thought wow how cool would it be to be doing pyro so he's like hey here here's the phone number of the local pyro company and it was named uh zenith pyrotechnology which was in deer park long island new york which was uh close to me because i lived in long island at the time so i gave him a call um, I started doing some local shows, and then next thing you know, their main account was WWE Wrestling. After this, Ralph would work for four years doing pyro with them. He then took some time off the road, and it was in 2007, just before the OzFest tour would begin, that Lordy would find their way into his life. Zenith Pyrotechnology is looking to put together a two-man pyro crew. For this band, Lordy. Right. They had just done the Bamboozle Tour in New Jersey. Um, so this is the first time I'm hearing them. So this was uh, May, let's say, April of 2007. April, May 2007. So Marie Kuhn, who is the head of operations at uh, Zenith, brings me into the office and goes, watch this video. Turned out to be the Stockholm uh, bringing back the balls to Stockholm DVD. Right. 
and the Market Square Massacre. And first I saw the costumes, me being a huge Alice Cooper and Kiss fan, and Deacon Guar and all that kind of shit. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is fucking awesome. And then I heard their music, and I was like, all right, cool. Kind of like Alice Cooper, Kiss. Uh, I thought his vocals were a little more, like, Udo-ish, and yeah. more a gravelly growl. I'm like, okay, I dig it. I dig the whole thing. So, of course, a couple of minutes into watching the videos, um, I tell Maria, I was like, if you get this tour, I want in on it. Just like many of Mr. Lordy's close relationships, his friendship with Ralph was founded on their common love of Kiss. So we go, we, we go to the hotel room, and this is where I meet their tour manager, uh, Dick Stone, as he is known by. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and of course, so we're talking, um, Dick calls, uh, Mr. Lordy to come to the room and it was like, as soon as he opened the door, it was like slow motion, you know, little butterflies and hearts. We saw each other and it's just like, ah. so he comes in, I see his tattoos, you know, they're all starting to talk pyro and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you like kiss? Oh yeah, I like kiss. Blah, blah, blah. So you like makeup? I like makeup. And, um. Back in 1992 or 93, I was in a uh, one of the issues of Fangoria magazine, which was a horror magazine. Yeah. And uh, I had my makeup came in third out of I don't know maybe 2,500 people right. to win a scholarship for uh, a course at this makeup school, Joe Blasco Makeup School in Florida. So, you know, we're talking about that. And he's like, in his finish, ah, oh, dude, I think I have that. I think I have that magazine. I think I've seen your makeup. So that got us talking. Okay. And then all of a sudden, Mooch and Dick both look at us, you know, after an hour of us talking, kiss, and all kinds of other shit, while the other two guys are, are talking the, you know, all the, the, everything about the tour and everything that's going on. They both look at us and go, can you two fucking love birds get back to, you know, talk, talking about the tour and we can talk about Kiss later? And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, so that, that we, we got to talking about Kiss, we got to talking about the band, and then that's what it was on the 11th, which was the next day, I was going to meet the full band at, at the uh, uh, arena in, shit, it was Seattle. Ralph always calls the summer of 2007 the best and worst summer of his life. The best because he got to know Lordy, but the worst because his sister unfortunately passed away just before the commencement of the tour. On the, on the taxi ride to the venue is when I got the call from my mom that my sister was about to pass. So, you know, I spent a couple of minutes on the phone, you know, telling her, you know, it's your time. Um... So here I am pulling up into the venue, just met the band. Now I met the full band. And now my mom calls back saying she passed. So I'm like, shit, I can't let the band know. You know, I, I, I don't want them to get this off on a bad start. But now here I'm thinking, crap, I just met the band. I've got to get Mooch ready for the 12th because that is the first show of OzFest. Okay. So, you know, I'm keeping a, a smile on my face. Yeah. No one knew. You know, I just told him, say, hey, look, you know, yeah, we're going to work together. Everything will be fine. So what ended up happening was the next day, um, the 12th, I flew back to Phoenix and I spent the first week at home, you know, to be with my mom and to bury my sister. Yeah. Um, and the band was like, hey, where's that long-haired crazy you know, American guy, and then that's when Mooch told him what happened, and uh, they were like, oh, man, you should have said something. I was like, hey, didn't want to get things off, you know, on a sad note. He goes, he'll be back, and we'll take it from there. And uh, that that was my first meeting with the band, and that's really where my involvement with Lordy started. Ralph, following the conclusion of OzFest, would stay in contact with the band, and when Lordy returned to the States in the fall of 2007 to tour with Typo Negative, Ralph met up with them. 
So I met up with them in Connecticut uh, for one show that they did up there. And then uh, my main job, and still till this time, um, I'm a production manager for WWE okay. uh, Entertainment. Yeah. So I'm lucky enough that since I travel around the world, I'm lucky that sometimes I could take a couple of weeks off here and there. So I ended up taking off probably like two weeks um, at the end of the typo tour. So this would have been like late October of 2007. So at this time, uh, I started filling in doing the props because at the end, at the end of Ozfest, about maybe two weeks before the end, their um, their prop guy Demo had to go back to Finland. So now I'm filling in. So I started helping out with props whenever I could, you know, handing the the dynamite stick or the baby doll or the the CO2. Ralph's friendship with the band blossomed after Ozfest, and their relationship as a whole can be summed up by a gift. With Ozfest, you're going to be on the road with each other for six weeks. So you got to really learn to, hopefully, you always hope that the tour that you're on and the crew that you're with is going to work out. Because ain't nothing worse than being on with a band or a crew that you just do not get along with. Yeah, It's going to be a long, fucking shitty summer. These guys were just so friendly and we just hit it off like i said the first day at first you know since i didn't know them we didn't really know each other there was a little bit of distance you know they were on the the band was on their bus crew was on our bus and of course us crew guys we just got fucking drunk uh every night played naked fucking ice hockey in the back freaking uh lounge and woke up and did it again uh so, you know, after a couple of days of starting to get to know each other, you, know, you see, you, you gravitate to certain people. And me and Mr. Lordy gravitated to each other on days off. You know, we'd be sitting outside the bus in a Walmart parking lot or somewhere or someplace cool. And like I said, this is when he was still smoking cigars. I'm like, hey, mind if I join you? No. And bang, our conversations started. And then, you know, I, I think really the one that was the most quiet at the time was Lady Ava. Um, so I, w- I would speak with her, you know, so she wasn't left out. There was only two girls on the time, uh, Mr. Lordy's ex-wife at the time, and uh, and uh, Lady Ava. So, you know, they mostly stuck together. Um, I would bullshit with them, you know, kind of get them feel friendly and all that stuff. So, And also, I'm the kind of guy, I will talk to anybody, you know, um, and if we gel, we gel. If not, you know, hey, what's going on, man? Have a good day, kind of shit. So with that, yeah, like we just became friends and every day we're with each other. We're going out to eat when we can. We're just bullshitting about everything. So it just gelled. It gelled with everybody. The nights that we had off, go out drinking, you know, just had a, a blast of a time with each other. Um, towards the end of the, the, uh, the tour, not sure if I mentioned, but, you know, I wanted to give him a present. And there was a photographer on our bus. And by this time, they already know I was wacky and fucking kind of a nut job. Um, there was one of the vendors on the tour was called I Love Vagina. So it was like T-shirt. Everything you can fucking think <laughs> that they could slap that fucking saying on was. So I got a I Love Vagina shirt by the two sizes too small and um a pair i went to walmart and got a pair of like you know freaking speedo little men's bikini underwear too small (laughs) put my hair in ponytails and with some black paint blacked out two of my teeth and i had this photographer do like a photo shoot of me on the bus you know and this i got (laughs) <laughs> printed up 8 by 10 with, you know, guys, thank you. Love you guys. It was so great. And that was my gift to the band. Now, the whole week before the last show, Tommy wasn't really hanging out. And every time I came on the bus, he was always in the back. 
and had come on and be like, you know, it looked like he was hiding something behind his back or he was working on something. And it, it was kind of fishy because I'm like, ah, okay, whatever. Um, what ends up happening is the day before the show, the last show, he calls me to the back of the bus. He painted me. I got it somewhere. I know it's probably still packed, but I got a picture. He painted me almost like an 18-inch, a 16 by 18, whatever, a nice Gene Simmons painting. He's like, this is for you. And I fucking welled up, and I'm like, thank you. Jesus. <laughs> and he goes, I was like, uh, thank you. I don't know what else to say. Uh, this is very special. It's going to hang up in my office. And I'm like, with that, I am going to leave the bus right now because I am going to cry like a little bitch. <laughs> and I walked out. And I was just like, oh, my God. Blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. And, you know, as the years went on, we, we kept in touch. Following Lordy's extensive touring cycle. In an ordinary hospital. Everybody alright. Mr. Lordy set out to work on a movie with his childhood friend, Pete Risky. Consumed by evil. Who some of you may know was the director of the early Lordy music videos. Six strangers will face a darkness. What was that? Beyond their understanding. That movie was Dark Floors, and that would be Lordy's first feature-length movie. Dark Floors would be the most expensive Finnish film ever made until that point, costing in the region of 4.2 million euros. And despite an incredible amount of work by Mr. Lordy and Pete, the film's plot was changed, and ultimately led to the film not gaining the praise and recognition it would have deserved. So, me and Pete wrote the story... Uh, like we have done many, many times in the past, many, many times before in the past. Uh, 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 Marcus Selin, who is the producer of the movie, who was my, you know, employer for years. I mean, I, I drew a lot of, I did a lot of work for him over the years, and uh, so he was the obvious producer for, of course. And uh, he told me that, okay, do, who do you wanna, who who do you want? Wanna be the who do you want to be the director for the film? And he suggested Rennie Harlin, who was my fucking childhood hero, yeah. uh, the Finnish director who who did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four, did the Prison, the Cliffhanger, uh, so on. What else? There's there's plenty. I mean, he was like big time Hollywood director, Die Hard Two. Yeah. But I said no, it has to be better. It has to be more for better. And and Marcus was like, really, you really wanna? I was like, yep, 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 yep. I'm helping my friend. I'm, I'm obviously I'm taking my friend here to do this shit. You know, he's the guy who did all the Lordy videos. I mean, he's the guy. He's my fucking. He's my guy. You know. Uh, Marcus said, sure, all right, let's do it. So me and Pete, we had no problems. We were writing the story, and then. Then Marcus gave us another guy who was actually a, a, a screenwriter guy who came in to write with us. It 
didn't click at all. This screenwriter, Pekka Leitosari, was a prominent Finnish screenwriter. But according to Mr. Lordi, he hadn't worked on many horror films before. But he didn't know shit about horror, so that didn't work out. And he, when he did the first draft, is all of a sudden the whole film was about, it was like anti-abortion film, really. And he had this, this guy had his relig- religious uh, uh, views that he put on the script. Was, well, not, oh, not with this band, you're not. Nope. And so, so we scrapped that, and then we continued and rewrote and rewrote that many times, and and eventually we were happy with it. And we had another guy who came in to write write with us, and mainly he was actually working with Pete because at that time I was already busy with something else in the Lordy world. But basically, I was there involved, and and Pete, of course, like twenty four seven. Started filming. The script was good. We were, and especially Pete was very strict on selecting the, the the actors. I mean, I mean, we were fucking happy to get guys that were uh, before and like 28 days later and and and, and Hellraiser yeah. and so on. And I'm like, fuck yeah, yeah, this is cool. We got everything that's cool. I mean, I'm still so fucking proud of the film. I mean, that is like. I mean, I mean, everything looks so fucking awesome, and we had cool actors and actresses in it, and yeah, and everything was like, yeah, the CGI works, and everything, like, fuck yeah. Yeah. And then, then, in the very last fucking weeks of shooting, or even could it could, it could have been days of shooting, Marcus comes up. It was in these final days that Mr. Lordy and Pete were forced to make some changes to dark floors. The info came and we had this crisis sit down fucking meeting when the not the producer not 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 Marcos but the, but the financiers of the movie. And I they were not even from Finland I think from Iceland or some other countries like that that, that there was like a bunch of people uh, or companies or well people <laughs> in the end there are people who were financing the production of the film and they i guess they didn't really know what they were financing we were doing a horror film and and those people when they finally read the script or 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 started like realizing what we were doing that's one of the many many times when there's a when people are at a some assumption they they have they have assumptions of something what lord is about and this was the clearest example of something that they only knew as through Eurovision victory and Eurovision. So they thought that we're going to make a film uh, about this band that is coming from Finland and winning this Eurovision uh, whole family-friendly competition. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story of this victorious, funny, family-friendly monster band going to Eurovision or something like that. They are, it's, it's like a whole good good old fun for the whole family still to this day i don't know that didn't they read the fucking scripts didn't they read the fucking uh memos or anything before they said that they're gonna finance it because in the last fucking moments of filming the the shooting the film they said this is too desperate this is too sad this is too dark we don't get it we we are gonna pull out our financing from the movie unless you change at least the ending and me and Pete, we were like, what the fucking fuck? How can this be happening? But it was, and I remember Marco saying, well, here's the situation. This film is not going to be done if the financiers pull out their fucking money. So we have to rewrite the ending because that is the last thing yet to be done. Okay. And the only thing that was that we could do is like, like they wanted they wanted a happier ending to the film but that meant that all the things that were supposed to happen and to become clear in the final scene of the film uh, all these little weird complicated things that are in the spider web of this film that how does this all tie up together which is really pretty clever in my in my if, if you ask me that it, how it all comes together and what is the actual revelation where it all opens up like oh my god that was thrown into the trash bin the original ending of the film would have had the girl in the wheelchair kill her father 
and that she was the demon and that the monsters were trying to stop her from wreaking havoc. You know, but we didn't shoot. We didn't have the money to shoot. We didn't have the permission to shoot the, the correct ending where everything would have been, you know, explained. Yeah. So all this time jump, all this red crayon thing, all these, all these things there were left, you know, left unexplained. They were all left without an explanation because of that thing. And that's when the money spoke and, and gave the rules to the art, you know, so it was like, and, and, and so this was basically in a way, in a way, a second time it already, it, it happened again. Yeah. You know, with Kin, it wasn't about the money. It was about something that somebody didn't, didn't, didn't uh, have the guts to tell me something. And this second time, it was that the, some people did not know what they were, what, what they were financing. Of course, in the film, as Mr. Lodi just said, the monsters are meant to be the good guys. But due to the changes in the script, they ultimately are portrayed as the villains. One of those monsters was Eamon. And here he gives us his experience of working on Dark Floors. Three days for me. Okay. Travel day to Oulu. And... Okay, I don't remember. Maybe I shot something on the on a, on the first day. Maybe second day, full day, and on third day, some shootings, and then I uh, came back to southern part of Finland. And what I what we were amazed was that money money for the band was so good. Like individual members, yeah. it's like what? And they told us that. You know the production company that this is uh, the way that every uh, actor this is a normal actor salary in Finland and we were like really are you are you serious so uh, I can't remember the numbers but it was was it like 1,000 euros in a day yeah so I think it was three days and 3,000 euros for me Jesus Jesus indeed <laughs> Numerous scenes in Dark Floors required stunt doubles for the band members, but with Lordy's costumes, things generally don't go straightforward. The thing is with these masks that if you you can't just take, for example, arm and costume and put it on you, it looks stupid. It it really does. Okay. Every human being is different, believe it or not, and we know that because we everybody has a certain uh, you know height and certain weight and certain way to walk and certain way to talk and everything and certain way to move. So, if anyone on this planet puts uh, any aiming costume on and thinks that it looks good, it doesn't look good. <laughs> it's that's the way it is. When they made a costume for that. My uh, stunt guy, uh, he looked, he looked different, and I was just like, yeah, yeah, he doesn't look like Aaron, but I will have a beer. So, do you do what you do? <laughs> I, I'm well paid here. <laughs> During one particular stunt scene, Aaron had to break down a brick wall, but unfortunately, that didn't go to plan either. I was touching it, and I'm just like, I was like, how you can punch in? through that wall and they were it's, it's, it's easy just just use your all your force and just fucking do it i'm like it's not going to work it's like i don't know the english word but it was really really thick wall and then i did it and nothing happened <laughs> and then there was another guy okay 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 that's why we have a stunt guy for you uh, so uh he come he came there and <laughs> Cameras roll. I was there tipping my beer. I was like, I, I want to see this because I'm, I really want to see this. And he did it. And nothing happened. <laughs> and he was like, he was like power, powerful guy. I'm like, yeah, I told you. And then the guys around us were like, you know, the shooting crew, and, yeah. uh, whatever. There was, there was, they were like, I think this wall is too thick. And I'm like, yeah, you think so? Because you need a fucking cannon to break this one. I'm not a super monster, a superstar, a super fucking 
ban here. Yeah. But we thought that you could break it. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god. Who are you people? <laughs> there is actually a human being inside this costume. Yeah. So you can't break it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh my god, no, I can't. <laughs> so then they made a lot of drills in there and, with, uh, you know, and a lot of holes and they were drilling it and then, then it was easy. One city, two days, two concerts. There's never been a gathering like this on the planet ever. Rock to Wellington, Ozzy Osbourne, Kiss and more monster acts to be announced. Rock to Wellington, brought to you by Capital C and The Rock. In 2008, nearing the end of the Eurocalypse era, Lordi would perform at two key festivals. Both of these festivals are important due to their meaning to the band and also in how they pinpoint the history of Lordi at this time. The first of these festivals was Rock to Wellington in New Zealand, which was in March of 2008. Lordi here would finally get the opportunity to perform alongside acts like Alice Cooper, Kiss, Ozzy Osbourne and Whitesnake. This festival in many ways was the boyhood dream of so many in the band. Like you said, we were at Rock to Wellington and the whole, well, you know, the lineup was kind of weird because I mean, there's like all these legends, there's like, like starting from you know, there's Poison, there's Whitesnake, there's Ozzy, there's Alice, there's Kiss, and Lordy. Yeah. You know, so it's like, who doesn't belong in this, you know. But, you know, so we were the opening on the opening band on the, on the, on the day one. And after, after us, it was Alice, and after Alice, it was Kiss. Right. So, I mean, like, like come on. Yeah. You know, like, like for us, it was like, woohoo. So... Weta Workshop, the company behind the props for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, had designed the stage props for the festival, like a huge Gene Simmons axe base, dragons, zombie cheerleaders, and the list goes on really. While Lordy were performing though, Peter Jackson, the director of those films, and crew from Weta Workshop praised the band's look. He watched... Um us and then when Alice started uh, at some point he got tired and he said oh, I think I guess I, I think the Finns were better <laughs> or something <laughs> and he went home or something like that and and then then after the after the show I mean after the evening or whatever you know after after his show or at some point uh, uh, we got a word uh, throughout then manager Bill or coin that that they were a workshop you know that they, they they presented us an invitation to go to the where the workshop the next day right oh actually not the next day it was like because we played on Friday then the second day was Saturday and then, and actually it was Easter time I remember that so right. I yeah. guess it was Sunday when we got the invitation to go there so most of our crew and the band we went there and uh, so there was Richard Taylor who's the head of we had a workshop. Yeah. And it was like, I mean, we spent there the whole day looking, you know, going through all the all the Lord of the Rings costumes. And I got crazy because there, there was a, a small room filled with Peters and, and Richard's like old stuff, which means bad taste, obviously. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, I meet the feebles, the puppets and shit. And I was like, woo. <laughs> and it was during this visit that Mr. Lordy was offered the opportunity to work with Weta Workshop. Yeah, and at some point, uh, I don't remember, was it that first meeting there or was it like something because we stayed in touch then on, over the phone and on, on emails. Uh, so, yeah, they said, well, you should come, you, you, you know, come work here. You know, I was like, nice. well, and that was tempting because I, I met a lot of people there who were actually, I remember especially this one girl from Norway, and I guess she didn't really have that much experience in in the in the whole sculpting or painting or makeup or anything like that but she just had this fire in her she she just wanted to do it so much yeah. so she she told me that she just wrote to them and they said welcome and then they you know trained her you know okay. then that's how that's how cool that 
bunch of people in New Zealand in, in Uveda workshop. That's how cool they are. They don't they don't keep the info and the and the know how know how to themselves. They yeah. share it with others, which is fucking awesome. Which yeah. is like, which is great. So yeah. So they told me that that you should come here, and I, I, and I was kind of thinking about it, but then also the the, the cold hard fact is that. That would have mean that would have meant that the, 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 that I should have put my fucking life work, which means Lord of the band, you know, on ice. That's yeah. what it is, you know. The other festival, which plays a huge part in the Lordy story, is back in 2008. Lordy would close out this festival in front of nearly 75,000 metalheads on the True Metal stage and in the process would also perform their final show in the Eurocalypse era. For this part, we're going to listen to Eamon Kita's Awa's perspective of the band at this moment in their history. I remember the feeling like, okay, let's, now we have a chance to be like uh, rock stars, and but this will not last, so... Uh, yeah. Let's let's have a good time now. Yeah. <laughs> so at least me and Kita were having a really good time. So, yeah. but we knew that it's it, it, it won't last. Like it's just a Eurovision hype. And I remember it was it was still raining, and I remember to you know walking uh, uh, to to the van or whatever to to, to take us to hold to the hotel. And I remember that I I I can I can do the shit much longer. Uh, it was it was I was like totally kind of like. I'm I'm starting to get like I'm starting to be like done um, because um, maybe at that at that moment I was never really a drummer so I I didn't love to play drums it was it was always my job to do you know yeah but I didn't get that kick playing drums so I I loved everything like around it the you know the shows and uh, and traveling and and whatever you know after party and whatever but but playing itself it didn't give me it didn't feed my musical soul right so at that and of, of course at that point we were so exhausted because uh, after 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 winning the eurovision we were going here and there and everywhere all the time yeah. so it was it was pretty pretty weird time mm, quite um, uh tired yeah. <laughs> and especially i think mr lord was having some kind of a small burnout, I think. Or or at least he was quite exhausted. We were all, but I think he was the, the most because he had done, he's, you know, the main brain of the band. So yeah. if if we had some quick break, he probably was already making new album covers or something. So he never basically rested. So uh, it was quite a bit like, not melancholic, what could I, just a little bit tired. Yeah. <laughs> Amen and Kita, they remember things differently. They remember those like particular moments, so that was the last show and stuff like that. Because mm, here's the difference between me and the every other member of Lordi ever, past or present. I live Lordi 24-7 all the time. I do stuff, so it's just a long fucking line of time and 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 things that happen. For me, they overflap the things like all the time. But but my life is Lordi. That I'm I'm doing every single day. I'm doing something Lordi related, and most of the things that I'm doing are Lordi related. And that has been the case ever since fucking before they even get heavy was released. You know. You know, I was doing every every single day. I was doing something loaded related already when I when I met Eamon, for example. I was doing, you know. So that's why I I, I don't have that much emphasis on on, 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 on on particular events like like the Walk-in being the last show of the Arachalypse era because I don't remember that. I I, 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 I don't remember that show I, at all. Right. I okay. I have no I have no memories of that because nothing special happened during that show or during those days. I mean, I I, I remember, yeah, yeah, we played in Rocket, but I don't remember that show. Yeah. I don't. I, I have no memory of that because then then because I had to I had to ask you that. Okay, so that was two thousand and eight. Okay, so that means that my head 
was already completely and deep in the Derek era. Because when I go back uh, to the fall of 2007, that's when the that's when the the Arachalypse era ended for me. We had Asfest. Then we had two weeks off in between, and I was like already so happy that now this 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 year and a half of craziness or, or one year of craziness after Eurovision it's over, and now I can come, you know now I can take a little bit of a vacation, and then start working on the next album. But no, after those two weeks, or actually within those two weeks that we were off, we got an offer and we got back to the fucking states to tour with Typo Negative. Yeah. And that was that was the breaking point for me because I I did the tour. When I got back home, I I was already late from 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 writing the new stuff for uh, for the, the stuff for the for the next album. And I, that's when I got the nervous breakdown. I got a, a, a burnout. And and the only thing that saved me from from being like severely depressed was. Uh, that the, I, I wasn't suicidal. I didn't have any suicidal thoughts. That was the only thing, only box in the questionnaire, so to speak, that I didn't cross. Okay. Uh, but but I mean, I that I was so exhausted mentally and physically that that the symptoms started started you know coming so from so strange uh, uh, places that I first of all I I lost a sense of smell, right. then I forgot how to speak Finnish. Uh, then I started forgetting the, the 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 names of my friends, of people. I started forgetting their names. Then I was fought, fought watching Frasier, the, the, the sitcom on yeah. TV, and I started crying watching it because it was so touching. And, and, and then I lost the hearing on my left ear. I went to the doctor who's a friend of mine, and she did the test for me, and I said, okay, you have a severe burnout. And, uh, you know, and she wanted to give me uh, uh, drugs and you know medication for that, and I, I I declined. I said no because I'm such an addictive personality that if it would be if it would make me feel good, I would be a fucking drug addict now. I would be I would be I would be addicted to these uh, medicines now. Yeah. And I know myself, you know. So I said no. So my 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 ex-wife then came from Helsinki from our from our home and took away my fucking phone. And then she started screening the calls that I'm gonna get. So okay. that was the that was the cure. But it took three or four months. Yes. So and remember, this is this is like the end of the year 2007, beginning of 2008. Yeah. So for me, that's when the Dead Egg era started. That's when I wrote the songs for Dead Egg album in a, in the most depressive you know uh, uh, state that I've ever been. You know, okay. and and for me, that's that's Dead Egg. The Eurocalypse phase is an era marked with incredible success for Lordi and littered with various opportunities which we've covered here. All of Mr Lordi's work and struggle from leaving Wanda Whips Wall Street in 1992 and conceptualising the idea of Lordi, it had all culminated in this mass appreciation of his creation. The only problem with that of course is that the mass media were never truly understanding of the idea or the band and that goes for the general public too but that's next season on Monsters of Rock The Lordy Story before I let you go though we have a bonus episode for you next week Lordy's fan base is truly extraordinary and each one of us has an extraordinary tale or Lordy story to tell like how we got into the band what they mean to us the role that they play in our lives and that's why next week we're going to hear from the fans you you who's listening and you are going to tell us about your own lordy story in our lordy appreciation episode titled the monster maniacs
I'm Matthew Kessie and Monsters of Rock The Lordy Story is a true metal podcast production. I'd like to thank all of the guests who featured in the first season of this series. And I guess, really, you've all been truly amazing to work with. And it's been an honor listening to your stories. So thank you so much for your time. So my thanks go out to Voodoo, G-Stealer, Mr. Lordy, Eamon, Kalma, Kita, Awa, Tracy Lip, Ralph Ruiz, and Yane Halmkrona. And of course, you can look forward to hearing the amazing stories of Mana, Hela, Hisi, Jess Psycho, and Nale in the next season, which will be dropping in early 2021. And of course, please don't forget to look at our photo library for this week's episode on the True Metal Podcast Instagram page. And of course, thank you for listening.